Grab your Bibles and go with me to Psalm 46. And, you know, we were going to start a series today on eternal security. And we, we just decided we would hold off on that series until we were able to get back together as a group. Um, and so in light of everything that's going on, you see the slide up here, COVID-19, coronavirus. If, if you're anything like me, you're going blind on these updates, you know, bad news on top of bad news each day, more closures, more predictions for how long this will last, uh, more updates on the infection toll, the death toll, and all those kind of things. And so, you know, a couple of, uh, there's a couple of different ways to respond to all of this. And obviously, we're aware of the two extremes where people uh, are very reckless and they say, well, they're not going to allow this to impact any of their life. And then you've got other people who are very extreme and, and maybe taking great caution not to, uh, to even leave their bedroom. Um, and so we've got to, we want to strike the balance in between there. But one of the things we want to try to do is just stay informed with uh, the virus, stay informed with what the experts are saying, stay informed with what our, our leadership is saying, both statewide and nationwide. But we do that because we want to make prudent decisions, um, not only for ourselves, but also for others. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm young, I'm not going to get it, or I'm not at risk, so I don't really care. But I think the concern also needs to be for other people that we come into contact with. And so obviously we want to stay informed. And yet in, in light of all of that, we want to allow the Word of God to shape and influence our thinking more than the news, more than our news feeds, more than social media. And I believe that even in this time in our nation's history, in our globe's history, that there, is, uh, there can be rest in the midst of, of chaos. There can be certainty in the midst of uncertainty. And many of us are across the spectrum on that. You know, some are worried from a health perspective. Some are worried from a financial perspective. So lots of things going on in lots of our minds right now. And so I wanted to just kind of bring our attention back uh, this morning to the Word of God, and I want to bring it back to the character of God specifically um, so that we can have rest, internal rest in the midst of whatever's going on around us. And so to do that, I want you to turn to Psalm 46. And the title of the message this morning is, Can You Be Still? Can You Be Still? You know, Psalm 4610 is one of those verses that gets crocheted, that gets puts up on our, put up on our walls, that gets shared uh, from time to time on social media, it's, it's pretty much everywhere, that phrase, be still and know that I am God. And so we want to look at this entire psalm this morning because it's just a rich uh, depth of, of information about the character of God. And, you know, when you think about being still, that is got to be one of the toughest things to do. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the punishments of, of young children in our day that's, that's come out in the last 20 years is is sit in a corner, time out. And that's, that's being still where they can't move. And it's one of the toughest things to do. But we're going to see that this morning that being still biblically does not involve inaction. You know, typically we think of being still, we think of not doing anything. And, and I don't believe that's what the scriptures are teaching there. I don't think that's what the psalmist had in mind there. And we're going to see that it actually involves action. There's a, a different type of action, but we're going to we want to kind of develop that as we work through the psalm. And before we start, I, you know, I recognize that this psalm is really designed primarily to, to have been a, an encouragement to the nation of Israel in light of the Gentile nations that were around them, that were constantly 
uh, in tension with them, constantly threatening war. But one of the things that we're going to find is even in this psalm, even though it's primarily given for Israel, what we're going to see is that there are some wonderful insights into the character of God and some principles that I think would, we can even take with us in our day. And so without further delay, let's read verse 1. In fact, you're going to find this psalm is really broken up into three sections, verses 1 through 3, that's the first, verses 4 through 7, that's the second, and then verses 8 through 11. And you'll see in your Bibles that each of those sections is separated by a word, selah. And so we're going to take each section as its own unit. Obviously, they're connected, but we're going to look at each section as its own unit. And so in verse 1, it reads this, God is our refuge in strength, a very present help in trouble. Verse 2, therefore, we will not fear Even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, and then we see the word Selah. And so that very first word is is God in verse one. And you know, it's interesting, and we'll we'll kind of make this point as we go through the psalm, but the word for God there is Elohim. Elohim is kind of a generic, more of a generic name for God. In fact, pagans would oftentimes use Elohim to describe maybe their God. But the the emphasis with this word choice and the use here is he's the all-powerful one. Elohim kind of has this generic quality of being the all-powerful one. And what we see here is that God, the all-powerful one, is described three ways in this verse. In fact, when we talk about God being all-powerful, this is the baseline for everything that the psalmist is going to say. And, And it's important to understand that because I could substitute something in the place of God and it wouldn't mean as much to say the same thing. If I told you that my three-year-old son is my refuge, my strength, and my very present help in trouble, you'd be like, well, that's great in an imaginary sword battle or maybe in a Nerf gun battle if he's really good at shooting. But that, that's not what it's saying here. I'm not, I'm not saying that I've got some human agency that's my refuge, that's my strength, or my very present help in trouble. No, I'm saying, or this psalmist is saying that God, the all-powerful one, are these three things. And so let's look more closely at these three things. This first description uh, describes God as our refuge. And literally the word means safety and free from danger. Now, figuratively, it came to represent a place of refuge, uh, a shelter which provides safety and freedom from danger. That's kind of figuratively what it came to mean. But the emphasis here, if, if you will, is, is on safety in a person. The, the emphasis is on safety in general, not just safety in a place. Um, and so that's very important to understand because when we talk about God, safety is found in him and him alone. Freedom from danger is found in him and him alone. And so the emphasis of this word, as I mentioned, is safety, regardless of how one provides it. And I think a great image of this would be a child running into the arms of their father when they're scared by a large dog or a loud noise. There's, there's safety in a person. The, this child would run to their father. There's safety in that person. Uh, another great example would be a young child jumping into dad and mom's bed when there's a thunderstorm. You know, the, the bed itself uh, is, is a place where mom and dad are. And so that child goes to mom and dad. 
it's the bed itself is not safety, but the presence of mom and dad is safety. And that's what we gather from this word. God himself is our safety. It's the type of safety, if you will, that if everything is swirling around you, it can't touch you or harm you. It's that kind of safety. And what we're going to find in verse two is the world moves. Stuff moves. Stuff swirls. The life swirls. We don't need a lot of convincing of that right now and in light of what's going on in our culture, what's going on in our world right now. But stuff shakes constantly. And what we're going to see is this is the type of safety in a person that no matter what's going on outside can't touch or harm you. And so God is our refuge. The second thing we see is that, from verse one, is that God himself is our strength. Now, our strength has this idea of power, just exactly what we think it, uh, it would be, might. Uh, it's a condition which can exert great force. And here's, I love this next phrase, or it can withstand great force. It's got to focus on having the ability to do what is desired, intended, or necessary. And so we see that description of God. Not only can he exert great force, but he can withstand great force. And that ought to give us comfort to know that no matter what circumstances are coming after us or, or pushing against us, not only is he strong to exert force, but he can withstand great force. He's got the strength to be able to do that. This is comforting uh, in and of itself, just knowing this. But then when we, we get to verses two and three, how much more comforting is it to see what we're up against? When you look at verses two and three, and we will more closely, how much more comforting to know that, that God can exert great force and he can withstand great force as well. In fact, how much more comforting is it to know that we do not have to be strong because God is? You know, we, we need someone not only in our day-to-day life, but just over history, Israel needed someone as well to be stronger than them because the task at hand is bigger than our strength. And that could be, that could be true of us right now where we are in life. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I hear often that really um, I think exposes, and, I, and I've said this before, and I think it exposes my thinking, my confidence in myself, unfortunately, is when we hear this phrase, oh, so-and-so is a strong Christian, Oh, I just want to be a strong Christian. I, I, that, that, she's a strong woman of God. She, he's a strong man of God. And you know, one of the things that I, that I have an issue with is many times when we say that, we're, we're almost emphasizing what that person is doing in their own strength. Now, it's subtle, and that may not be what we mean, but why not emphasize, wow, that man trusts the Lord. Wow, that woman trusts the Lord. Wow, they walk with the Lord. Versus saying that's a strong Christian. There's a, there's a subtle exposure there in terms of what we're emphasizing. You know, and it just reminds me of Jeremiah 17, verses five through nine. We won't read it, but you'll recognize the beginning. It just says, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. And so when we talk about being strong, it's not because we're in the spiritual weight room doing spiritual curls and doing spiritual squats and spiritual lunges. It's, that's not it at all. In fact, many people think, of, well, if I just read my Bible and that's curl number one, and if I just get up and pray a little bit more, that's curl number two. And we're building spiritual strength by all of these activities we're doing. No, we, we become strong when we rely upon the one who is strong. 
There's a difference. So then our Bible reading doesn't be, it's not about us lifting our spiritual weights. It's about us learning about the strong one, the strong God, the one who is our strength so that we might rely upon him more consistently. And, you know, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, I'm going to just turn there really quick. Very popular verse, but really points out this concept because it says this, uh, and this is Paul uh, writing. He said, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you know, that is, a, that is an incredible verse because it flies in the face of us saying that we want to be strong. Because typically when we, when we talk that way, we're thinking about strengthening Ourself instead of relying upon the God, re- relying upon our God. And one of the things that 2 Corinthians 12 brings out, which is so interesting, is Paul says, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches. I take pleasure in my needs. I, play, I take pleasure in persecutions. I take pleasure in distresses. I take pleasure in trials. I, I, play, I take pleasure in things that make me look weak, that cause me to realize my weakness. Why? Because in that moment, now I can actually depend on the power source that I'm designed to function in. And, you know, the psalmist realizes this in verse 1 of Psalm 46. God is our strength. He himself is our strength. And we have that third description. And I love this picture because it really, it, it seems to capture what's being communicated here. And that's that God himself is available. The third description is that he's a very present help in trouble. The word present is typically translated to be found. Uh, in other words, he's, he's available. You can find him or to be discovered. And so the idea communicated in this verse is that God is an abundantly available helper. He's an abundantly available helper. You might say it this way. This is someone who's on the lookout to help at all times. This is how God is described, that he's, he's always available. He's always on the lookout. He's waiting in anticipation to help. He's, he's leaning forward on his tippy toes, whatever image that we want to get it. But he's attentive. He, he's available. He, he wants to help. He's, he's looking for ways to help. And so God is described in these three ways. He's my safety He's my strength, and he is an abundantly available helper. And now we come to verse 2. And notice verse 2 starts with the word, therefore. And let's read verses 2 and 3 again. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, through the mo- though the mountains shake with its swelling. And so we see the word therefore. And as a result of these three descriptions that we've just looked at in verse one, <clears throat> the psalmist is going to make a conclusion. And that conclusion is, we will not fear. We, we will not be afraid. And, you know, one of the things that we notice is he's making this conclusion based on the character of God and not upon his circumstances. And you know that many of us, oftentimes we reverse 
verses 1 through 3 in our thinking. We put the truth of God's character on the wrong side of the therefore. We put the, the circumstances in life on the wrong side of the therefore. We, we completely switch them around. In fact, if, if we were honest to ourselves, the, the non-inspired John Clark version of the Bible would oftentimes read this. Even though the earth is removed and the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its sailing, therefore I will fear because God is not my refuge and strength. He's not a very present help in, in trouble, so I need to take care of myself. And we would, we would actually reverse it in our thinking many times. And so the psalmist has got it in the right order. We've looked at God's character, and now he's going to make a conclusion that we don't have to fear even if blank is going on, whatever that blank is in terms of trials or circumstances. And so he says, we will not fear. Fear just has the idea of being afraid or frightened. And it's uh, a little bit more than that. It's a state, a state of feeling great distress. It's a deep concern of pain or unfavorable circumstance. The other thing we pick up from the Hebrew language is it's in the imperfect aspect, which means it's an ongoing action or result. We could better say we will not go on fearing. Why will we not go on fearing? Because God is not just my refuge, strength, very present help of trouble from time to time, but that's who he is by, by his character. And so he, he, he's always those things for us. And so we don't have to go on fearing as a result of God's character. And again, notice that our reason for not going on, having to go on in fear is not because our circumstances are tranquil. In fact, they're just the opposite. We're going to see in verses 2 and 3 that the circumstances that he brings up are not tranquil circumstances. They are life-shattering. They are life-changing, life-altering type circumstances. But that's not the reason that we, we do not go on in fear. It's rather because God is everything that we need in spite of what's going on. Everything that we need in spite of what's going on. In fact, uh, notice verses 2 and 3. What about this? Even though the earth be removed, and he's saying, even if the solid ground that you're standing on crumbled beneath you and was removed from the bottom of your feet, you don't have to fear because of these things that are true of God. Well, what about this? The mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. That would be a little odd and disconcerting if you uh, we're in North Georgia or somewhere with mountains and you actually visibly saw a mountain get lifted up and thrown into the sea, that would be a little frightening. But you know what? We don't have to fear if that happens. We don't have to fear if the sea waters roar and be troubled. If you've ever been um, in a storm on a body of water, you, you might know what that fear feels like. Even though the mountains shake with its swelling, if there's some great earthquake uh, going on, even though we could go on, fill in the blank. Even if blank happened, even if blank was going on, even if blank, what is, what is your blank? And, and, you know, honestly, we have a lot to fill in the blank with right now in our day. And it's not just the coronavirus. It's normal everyday issues that cause us distress or pain or anxiety. If, you, if you've got relationship problems, you've got circumstantial difficulties, you've got a difficult emotional um, time that you're going through in your life, you've got a bad boss, you've got a bad job, you don't have a job. I mean, there's lots of things going on in our day 
And can you say to yourself, I will not fear, even though blank. You know, what, what is your blank this morning? And you know, many of us, uh, unfortunately, we couldn't say this if we were being honest with ourselves. We actually would need things to work out the way that we want them to happen. And, and the question for you this morning is, do you need certain things to work out the way that you want them to happen? Or can you not fear because of who God is? Can you, can you get uh, God's character on the right side of the therefore and your thinking this morning. And you know, even if all these things were true, even if the things in your life that you're filling the blank in were true, guess what? Verse one's also true. Verse one is not only true, but it's a trump card on verses two and three. You know what a trump card is? Those of us that have ever played cards, right? It's that card that you drop down that beats everything else. And you know what your trump card is? In Psalm 46, you know what your trump card is in life over your circumstances? It's the character of God that we find in verse 1. That's the trump card that we need to drop down in our thinking. In fact, I think the psalmist, as he's writing this, he says, man, this, this is good. You know, and remember the Psalms was the Jewish book of songs. This was their hymn book, if you will. And so he includes this word at the end of verse 3, Selah. And Selah is, is a musical notation. It was a musical notation in their hymn book. It, it meant to lift up. It, it probably gave singers kind of an indication where the song was to pause. Maybe in our day, I'm not a big musical person, but maybe somebody would, uh, would, would use a Selah to maybe change keys, give the pianist a, or the guitar player an opportunity to maybe put on a capo and, and change the keys, that would be where the selah would be. Um, but the pause may have also been used to um, increase the volume. Or this is really uh, interesting. You've got it uh, in blue and in italics to reflect on what was just said. And I think that is uh, probably an excellent understanding of how this word uh, was used oftentimes. It may have had a musical notation aspect, but also gave you an opportunity to reflect on just on what was just said. You know, for many of us, that's important because if you've ever done a Bible reading plan, sometimes you get into this crank it out mode. Like I got to get through my three chapters today or else, or I got to make up yesterday's three chapters. So I got to read six today. And you know, sometimes it's good just to read a couple of verses and, and see law and just reflect on what was said. And this is, this is a, a powerfully packed uh, few verses here, verses one through three. And so now we, we move on into this next section of the psalm in verses 4 through 7. Um, and this section is distinctly Jewish as it speaks of God's protection of the nation of Israel from other nations. Uh, again, though, I think there's application for us. This is an opportunity for us to continue to enjoy hearing about his character, who he is, what he can do. And so I want to take that approach. But again, the primary audience uh, and emphasis here is for the nation of Israel. And the first thing he says in verse 4 is that there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle uh, of the Most High. And so even though there's not a literal stream or water flowing through Jerusalem in, in the psalmist day or in our day, um, the place of the tabernacle, the, this holy place of the tabernacle is referred to as a river here. Uh, 
And so I believe he's, he's speaking figuratively. Obviously, there wasn't an exact river there. But, but this functioned as a refreshing, life-giving river for the Jewish nation. Remember, it was where they came when they, when they had sinned against God. They understood the substitutionary atonement. They could reflect on the goodness of God providing a provision for their sin so they might continue to approach him. And then, obviously, as the Shekinah glory shined upward and outward of the Holy of Holies, they recognized God's presence in their midst, which we'll get into in verse five. One of the things that's interesting is, uh, although it's referenced here figuratively, we know it's actually going to happen in Israel's future millennial kingdom, according to Ezekiel, that there's gonna be a water source flowing from a permanent temple, not the temporary tabernacle at the time. And so God is providing a refreshing presence for his people. Not only that, in verse five, we see that God is, is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, speaking of Israel, just at the break of dawn. And, and so right now, as the psalmist is writing, God was among them in their presence as reflected in the tabernacle. And it says specifically that the nation, because of this, won't be moved. In other words, they wouldn't be shaken. They wouldn't stagger. They, this implied a, a lack of motor control due to weakness or other factors. They, they wouldn't be knocked off balance because God was, himself was in the midst of her. And you know, for the believer in Jesus Christ, God's not just in the midst of our church assembly or in the midst of this building. But he's indwelling each individual believer. He's, he's given us the ability to be stable as we live and walk through this life. And so nothing needs to stagger us. Nothing needs to shake us. Obviously, we're looking at the character of God and, and the fact of what he can accomplish in and through uh, not only the believer's life, but in this context, the, the life of the nation of Israel. Notice the psalmist also says that God shall help her just at the break of dawn. And, and help, again, here means to give support, aid, or assistance. And the fact that this aid or assistance would come just at the break of dawn implies the beginning of the day. And so right when they would need it at just the right time, God would show up. Now, many times we, we think that God may be slow or he doesn't listen or he doesn't hear us, but God is never not on time. He may, may not be on our timing, but he shows up at just the right time. And I believe that's what emphasizes is what's emphasized here. So now we see that Israel doesn't need to be shaken or staggered by anything going on in the world. But you know, the same is not true for others. And this would have been an encouragement to the nation as they saw other nations were shaken. Other nations could be staggered. And we find that in verse six, the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. And so we see this phrase, the nation's Rage, And it communicates this idea that they groaned loudly due to tumultuous disturbance. And, you know, you, you hear uh, nations even doing that in our day when, when things are not going their way, maybe in, in trade deals or in sanctions, they groan loudly. It's causing a disturbance in their country. Or even with the coronavirus, we see uh, lots of groaning in that sense. But we also see in this verse that the kingdoms were moved, meaning that they were shaken, they were staggered. And this describes all types of geopolitical disturbances. And so although the nation of Israel should not be moved or staggered or shaken, other nations can be. In fact, it, it seems to indicate that God does shake things up 
for others apart from his nation. And so in the next phrase, we're going to learn more about the power of our God. And so again, what is, what is the psalmist emphasizing? Guys, your God is, is in control. Your God is powerful. He can deal with everything going on. He can, he can cause the nation of Israel not to be staggered or shaken while the rest of the whole world is staggered or shaken. And again, application abounds there for the church, right? Is, is although many people can go through this time period without hope, with uh, tons of fear and tons of anxiety, we've actually got a God who's fully in control of this and can give us peace in the midst of chaos. He can give us certainty, even when we don't know what next week will hold as it relates to the virus. And so this next phrase shows us the power of God. In fact, we see he, he makes this statement that he uttered his voice, the earth melted. So, so not only is God in control, but he's powerful. He's, he's completely powerful. His words have power. He created the universe with his words. Uh, we go through the Bible. We see what his word does. Jesus healed people just with his words. He didn't even need to touch them. I mean, this is a powerful God that we're talking about. And when he says the earth melted, I mean, clearly the, the earth itself physically didn't melt. So we believe he's using figurative language here. But it's implying that the earth was put into a state of emotional distress or fear. And we kind of use the word the same way in our day. Something difficult happens, and oftentimes you'll describe that as a meltdown. Oh, I melted down. I had a meltdown. And it's the idea of this emotional distress, this overwhelming emotional distress or fear. We do see, we do know in the future, though, that the earth will literally melt. We see that in 2 Peter 3, when God destroys it at his second coming with fire. That will be a literal melting. The word there means to loosen or untie. And that's when he's going to destroy uh, the earth with fire. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth at his second coming. And so that's obviously found later in the Bible. Um, but that will be a, kind of a tie-in here. He, he, he is able to melt the earth both figuratively and literally. Um, and we'll see the literal version of that in the future. Now, verse 7, we've got a repeated verse. It's, he's going to repeat the same exact thing in verse 11. But in here, verse 7, as he's talking about how God defends the nation of Israel against all other nations, he uses this phrase, and it's so uh, packed with meaning. It says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And so he says, the Lord of hosts is with us, literally the Lord of a military congregation of, of a large group of fighting men is kind of the idea. And so this is the army of heaven. This is the army that backs up God. And so not only is the all-powerful Lord with them, but he's also got an innumerable army behind him. And, you know, this imagery would have provided great comfort to the nation because they were always tempted. The nation of Israel, you look at their history, they're always attempted to make human alliances to increase their own fighting numbers. They would increase human alliances through, through trying to recruit different soldiers from different nations or different equipment from different nations uh, so that they would be numerically more superior than the fighting forces that they would go against. And the point is this, they didn't need anybody else. They had the Lord and they had his army behind him. They didn't need anybody else. They had everything they needed in the Lord. You know, additionally, what's really fascinating is the vocabulary switch that the psalmist makes here. In fact, 
Earlier I had mentioned he used the word Elohim for God. Now it's the first time he's, he uses the word Yahweh. That's very significant, especially for a Jewish person, because this would have reminded the Israelites of all the promises that Yahweh, that was their, their special name for their covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. And it would have reminded them of all the personal promises that he had made to their fathers and their nation. And he had made some incredible promises that, that Abraham and the seed of uh, David would always sit on the throne eternally, that Abraham's descendants would number the stars of the sea, that there would be a kingdom on earth where God would reign. There were all of these promises, and for him to switch now to the, to the Hebrew word Yahweh was to recall subtly, hey guys, this is the same God who's making you promises. It's the same God that wants to defend you. It's the same God that has this innumerable army. He's all powerful. That's all you need, but he's also got this army behind him, and this imagery would have encouraged them greatly. You know, it's this very God who is with the Israelites. So do they have anything to fear? No. I mean, if they realize that, they don't. Can they stay still with him by their side? You know, very fascinating story. We're going to turn there quickly. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. This is the story of Jehoshaphat. And, um, you know, this is a sermon in itself. And so we're not going to cover the whole thing. But I want to I just show you this mindset um, that I believe is reflected here in Psalm 46. We see it in King Jehoshaphat and the people as they respond to his leadership. Verses 1 through 4, it happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazan Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Now jump down to verse 12. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude. Notice he doesn't say, Lord, make us strong. Or Lord, I'm so glad we've been lifting weights. Or, or God, I'm so glad we have all these numbers, all these fighting men that we've trained them in such a way. No, he recognizes what the psalmist recognized in Psalm 46. God, we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And then jump down to verse 15. We'll see how this worked out for them. And he said, listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. By the way, that's the same word Yahweh there, the, the Lord. Yahweh says this to you. Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And you see the same 
concept communicated there in Second Chronicles. This is Second Chronicles happens much later than our psalm that we're reading today. But you see those principles applied, and you're going to see Jehoshaphat really um, exhibiting what it means to be still there. Now that doesn't mean he laid in his bed; he got out and fought a battle. But it wasn't his battle, it was the Lord's. And we'll kind of look at that more closely. But, you know, one of the things he says, you saw that. God, we have no power. God, we have no power. Not, I better get strong. But rather, God, you're my plan. You're, you're the strategy, God. You, you yourself, you, the person of God, are my plan. You're my strategy. You're my plan A. You're my plan B. You're my plan C. You're my only contingency plan. Everything that I am trusting in, Lord, is you and you alone. And you see that mindset come through from even Jehoshaphat. And so with the Lord of hosts with them, they can face anything that comes at them in this life. And you know what? The, the same God we're reading about in Psalm 46 is the same God that we serve. It's the same God that, that, that we worship. It's the same God that we walk with. It's the same God that's indwelling you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to get through this time period in our life and to be encouraged by his uh, character and what he does. And one of the things that we find is he says this, that second phrase in verse seven, the God of Jacob is our refuge. And, and I mentioned this before, but he uses a different word for refuge here. Here it's literally God is, is literally a stronghold, a, a fortress, a secure place um, possibly up high, completely safe from da- danger. And so the last time we saw refuge back in uh, verse one, it emphasized the person of God as our safety. And now it emphasizes an impenetrable position. It emphasizes how he saves us, if you will. It's this position of safety that he places us in with him. And so we might say it this way. God has not, is not only your personal safety, but he's also positioned you with him in a safe place. This is the message to the nation of, of Israel. The Lord of hosts is with you. The God of Jacob is, is, is placed you in a stronghold with him. It's kind of the idea. And guess what? Think about that. Man, just, just take that in and enjoy the truth of the character of your God. And so Selah, we see, finishes up after verse 7. And now we move into the last section. And really the last section begins to tell us how, what our response should be to all of this truth that we looked at. In fact, the first commands in the entire psalm are found here in verses 8 through 10. And so the very first commands are right there in verse, verse 8. Come and behold the works of the Lord. Come and behold. Those are our two commands. Uh, Come and behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. And so the psalmist gives these two commands. Come and behold here. The word come means to make a linear motion towards. That's exactly what we would think it would mean. And behold means to receive information from God by looking, observing, or gazing. And so when we use both of, them to, both of them together, it has the idea of coming over closer to something to observe it, to inspect it, to take a really close look at it. And in this case, when we look at verse 8, what are we to inspect closely and really take in um, and, and inspect? Well, it's the works of the Lord. 
In fact, it's the works of Yahweh. We, we find him sticking with that, that special name for their covenant-keeping God. And these works are mentioned in verses 8 through 9. God has made desolations in the earth. The, the word desolations means he's done something ugly. He's done something terrible to look at and, and so an object of scorn. And you see um, God just uh, destroying uh, Israel's enemies over the years. The, the devastation that he enacted on Egypt through the plagues could be, could be termed ugly, could be turned a desolation to that nation. Um, the way that he did other works in delivering them uh, throughout their, their uh, conquest of Canaan, etc. And so uh, God has made desolations in the earth. They've seen this. He's saying, inspect this, guys. Check it out. This is what your God has done for you. Why would you, why would you be afraid of today's enemies when he's already defeated yesterday's enemies? And the way that he did it was incredible. You can trust him with today's issues. And so the second work mentioned in verses 8 and 9 is he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. The psalmist uses the word for Sabbath here. God makes wars to cease, to cease from their activity. God can stop wars. What was Israel afraid of? That there was going to be some enemy that would come in with some war and totally destroy them and kill their children and take their city and take their land. And he's reminding them, guys, God can stop wars. You don't need to to worry about all of these things. God is going to take care of you. The third and fourth work of Yahweh is that he breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in two. The, The very things used to kill and destroy the Israelites by their enemies, God can put out of working order. The fifth work mentioned is that he burns the chariot in the fire. You know, chariots are interesting because it was always a battle tool that the Israelites were very interested in. They, they envied having chariots. They wanted to trust in chariots. That was kind of like the, I don't know, the, the submachine gun of the day or whatever. It was like the weapon of choice. And you'll see like even in Isaiah, he, he says, woe to them. Isaiah giving a prophecy, woe to the, to the nation because they're going down to Egypt for their chariots. They're trying to make human alliances to protect themselves. And the point is this, God doesn't need chariots to protect the nation of Israel. God doesn't need them making human alliances to protect the nation of Israel. He can defend his people. And you know, to really know for certain that God will take care of you today, you need to be able to see and remember how he's already taken care of you before. And you know, for many of us, we have a very short memory. It's, it's like we've, we don't even have a one gigabyte jump drive of memory in our thinking, in our Christian life. And we need to be able to go back to other times in our life where God has done something on our behalf or met our needs so that we can trust in him today to meet our needs just like he's done in the past. And then finally, we get to verse 10. Two more commands. Be still is one and know that I am God. And you notice I titled this slide, Be Still Through Abandonment. Verse 10 reads fully, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still is an interesting word. Um, The base meaning of this word is to hang limp. Uh, It means to be in a state where you lack power or force due to lack of muscle tone. You can kind of Maybe picture that in your thinking. And so the, the word's got a, a wide range of semantic meaning, um, but it came to mean leaving something alone, to, to abandon. 
to make a departure, implying a withdrawal of support. And so the idea is that you're, you're abandoning something. You know, and, and to kind of go with the base root meaning, you know, if you're it, speaking of my Achilles injury, but my, my calf muscle is still not as strong as it was before my injury. But many times as I was building my muscle, I couldn't put my entire weight on that leg because I was abandoning um, putting my weight on that leg because of the muscle tone wasn't there. So I, so I left it and I focused more of my weight on my other leg or on my crutches or what have you. That's the, that's the picture that it gives here. So what are we talking about when it says, be still, be still? What, what are we to abandon, in other words? What are we to withdraw support from? And I be, believe very clearly from this psalm, this is an active departure from trusting in yourself and relying upon yourself. Be still. Don't trust yourself. Don't rely on your, yourself. In fact, uh, the, the Hebrew helps out a little bit more. The, the hifel stem of this verb um, reflects causation. But it reflects a special kind of causation that, that the direct object participates in. In other words, let's put that in English. Your own actions to be still will be the cause of you being still. The, your, your own actions to be still will be the cause of you being still. What does that mean? This is active faith. This is active dependence. In fact, when we talk about um, active faith, active dependence, we're talking about you actively choosing to mentally trust the Lord. And when you do that, you and I will benefit and reap the results from it. And see, what's really ironic is when, when we're limp, or weak, or we don't have muscle tone, typically we feel like that exposes us to great harm from outside sources. And yet, this is the posture that's commanded. Stop trusting in yourself. Realize that you are weak and you have no muscle tone and start relying upon the Lord. Now, why can you be still? Well, the verse goes on to say, know that I am God. This is why we can be still. This is why we can abandon our trust in ourself. When you know that God is God, it implies that you know that you're not. See, quite frankly, that's much of our problem. We like to be in control. We like to be the one making the call. And this is saying, you know what? When you know God is God, you will not rely upon yourself. You can actually rely upon him. You can be still. You can abandon trust in yourself. Because if you truly know who God is and what he's done, you have more of a chance to be still and actively rely upon God. And you know, if we know that we cannot protect ourselves and that God is our refuge and strength, although we may feel very exposed and vulnerable, we realize something very important. We're never safer self-protecting. We're always safer trusting the Lord. And that's one of those things that we need to take hold of in our thinking, especially in this day of the coronavirus, but really in any day, because we go through life oftentimes doing the exact opposite of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We don't trust in the Lord, and we do lean on understanding. That's the opposite of being still. And you know what? God will be exalted. He, he is going to be exalted in the future. He can be exalted in your thinking now, but he will be one day exalted for who he is and, and, who, and what he's done. And then guess what? One final reminder, verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Again, just one more reminder of who God is and what he means to you. And by the way, think on it. Think about it. Consider it. Take it in. 
You know, I, as a closing story, the, you know, the safest place in South Florida during hurricane season may be the National Hurricane Center in Miami. This is a multi-million dollar structure which boasts 10-inch concrete walls, which is designed to withstand the force of a Category 5 or 185-mile-per-hour winds. Uh, it's equipped with backup generators, independent water supply. It's got its own water supply. They've got a pair of independent underground phone lines that are wired to different exchanges and underground fiber optic lines as well. This, the safe zone of the building, the central part of the building, features steel-reinforced poured concrete walls and an interior steel-reinforced poured concrete roof, which in, is independent from the building roof. So it's, it is uh, ironically... And it's positioned in such a spot in Miami that it's often been right in the line of many hurricanes. And yet, you know what? It's safe to say that one of the safest places to be during a hurricane in South Florida is right in the, right in the middle of the storm, right in the path of the storm. In fact, many of those workers, they stay in that facility to monitor the effects of the hurricane. And, and quite frankly, it's more safe in that building, in the line of the storm, than it is to be on the highways trying to get out of Florida to avoid the storm. And this is a great illustration for us this morning that God himself is our refuge, our strength, our very present help in times of trouble. We've got nothing to fear and we can be still. We can stop trusting in ourselves to self-protect. We can start trusting in him fully. And so I hope this morning that the word of God was just an encouragement to you. Um, I'm going to close with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to invite Josh up to give a couple of announcements. Lord, thank you for uh, the word this morning, just a reminder of your character and, and who you are and what you want to be to us in our daily life. And Lord, we just pray for our body uh, just in a very logistical way that you would protect them, uh, each one from this illness, that we would be able to uh, come alongside one another during this time, even if it's from a distance, and support and encourage one another. We just pray that you would, uh, as we read news reports, that we would be doubly reminded of your character and what it is that you want to provide and encourage us with. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.